Thank you for joining us, Her Petological Highlights, episode 22. This week, well, this bi-week, we are going to be talking about water snakes and specifically the effects of bad weather, drought on the water snakes, um, which obviously the clues in the name, they're pretty keyed into water. Um, so today's episode is all about what happens when things dry up. I'm Tom Major and joining me as always is my co-host Ben Marshall. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. How's it going, Ben? It's good. I think uh, bad weather is quite a delicate way of describing these droughts we're going to be discussing. These are multi-year droughts. Yes, think, super seasonal droughts. Yeah, I think uh, oh, just having a having a spot of drought is a bit of an understatement. To us, though, drought is just you're not allowed to use your hose pipe. Yeah. Whereas in other parts of the world, it gets a bit more serious. <laughs> well, one, I'm sure one day it will get just as serious here. Oh, yeah, there's absolutely no doubt. Yeah. Either that or um, worse still. What's that big current called that whips all the air around that we rely on quite heavily? Uh, North Atlantic Drift. The jet stream. One of those. The jet stream. The jet stream. Yeah. The jet stream's probably scheduled to stop working at some point soon, isn't it? So... We'll get all sorts of weather then. Yeah, so like we said, we're talking about drought, water snakes. Um, yeah, we found two papers which are pretty interesting. Um, one is about a non-native snake, so a snake that's existing in a habitat nature didn't put it in. And the other is about a series of snakes which are existing in their own native habitat and how drought affects them. Um, so without further ado, I propose that we go on to paper one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. let's get going. Okay, so this is Rose and Todd, which, you know, Rose and Todd are a famed water snake duo. Um, they often collaborate with other people. But this is Rose and Todd, 2017, Demographic Effects of Prolonged Drought on a Nascent Introduction of a Semi-Aquatic Snake. This is from Excellent Non-Native Species Journal, Biological Invasions. Um, and I noticed, Ben, that your favourite word was in the title of this paper. Yeah, you've 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 mocked me in the past for using the word nascent and here it is in a published journal implying that people do know what it means that it's a perfectly acceptable word the only reason i mocked you about it is because you said it and i didn't understand what it meant and i felt a fool it was a it was (laughs) was a knee-jerk reaction self-defense mechanism yeah i was like nascent what are you what are you dumb well i say nascent but yeah yeah nascent nascent i don't know how to pronounce it i only recently learned what it means potato potato um yeah, for those that don't know, there's no shame in it, first of all. There's no shame in it. I didn't know. No, it is, um, quite, it is quite an odd, quirky word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were definitely being facetious when you used it. Um, I don't think I was, actually. <laughs> I was genuinely, genuinely using it in a perfectly <laughs> yeah. fine place. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I just wanted to say procedures, so I was, you know, just sort of <laughs> counterbalance the fact that I didn't know what nascent meant. Anyway, so um, recent or young introduction? Yes, that's what they get. It means at. recent. Yeah. So basically, this species, um, the species we're going to be talking about, is uh, Nerodius cypodon, um, which is a water snake from East America. What's the common name of it? Common water snake, isn't it? Is it common water snake? There's a few subspecies, isn't there? And they've all got they've all got different names. 
Yeah, so depending on the subspecies, there's like Northern Water Snake, Lake Erie Water Snake, Midland Water Snake, Northern Water Snake, Carolina Water Snake, and then um, in German, Siegelringnatter. Bless you. <laughs> Bless you indeed. So yeah, um, this is a species which, as I said before, is native to eastern states in America. Um, it's not native to Florida. No, sorry, it is. Is it no. native to Florida? No, there's a really cool paper by Rose and Todd again, a 2014 one that look at the ranges and potential ranges of Nerodia. Um, how are we saying this? Cipadon, I've been saying. Cipadon. All right, we'll stick with Cipadon and uh, Fasciata. And for Cipadon, yeah, it's covering all of the East Coast, all the way as far west as mm, Kansas, but missing out states like uh, North Dakota. And it doesn't cover Florida, although it does sort of just edge into Florida in the sort of very far northwest of it. But that's based on climate climate suitability. And as far as I understand, it pretty matches up pretty well with their actual distribution on the East Coast. And actually, yeah, just talking about them being non-native to California and Washington and places, you look at this climate suitability and you would be forgiven to thinking it's not the greatest place for them to live because although there are patches of suitable climate in California and Washington and bits of Oregon, it's not. it doesn't look particularly sort of, what's the right word, contiguous. So, you, mm. it, it, yeah. so you, what you're talking about is uh, climate suitability um, as a measure of um, predicting a species range. Yes. Um, it's a really common method. We've talked about it before. Um, a lot of studies use this kind of long-term climate data information. They then compare the climate data from the native range to the non-native range, and they get an idea of where it might be found. They also have used it in the past. So you can, um, if you know how a climate changed over the course of time, you can see how a species population might have waxed and waned um, mm. through different kind of geological e- epochs, whatever. Um, it's definitely not perfect, but no, it's, it's not usually pretty decent. Yeah, it's it, it has been shown to be a reasonable indicator. There was a meta-analysis in 2015 by Mahoney and colleagues, and they suggested that um, the difference in latitude between native and introduced range had a really strong influence on whether or not introduced reptiles would be successful. So you can imagine similar latitudes have broadly similar um, climate if you go much further north or south, you know, you're going to be in, into a situation where the weather's going to be changing quite dramatically. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what the... That is kind of one of the things that this study was talking about is that's been used a lot in the past, but it's quite a broad scale. Um, and you don't really necessarily see, like, the extreme climate events, which species might be either accustomed or not accustomed to. Um Yes, and they're the sort of things that can potentially wipe out a newly introduced little population or something along those lines. That's that's the drive of this paper, is to work out whether these... Uh, I was going to say freak weather instances, but they're not really freak, are they? They're, um, they're just different to what they're accustomed frequent. to in their native range. Yes, yeah. yeah, but they're not, they don't show up in the climate data No, in the way that yeah, would so actually prevent popping up on their sort of predicted range or yeah so you've kind of alluded range. to the f- 
Yeah, you've alluded to the fact there that um, the climate data is quite coarse. So um, you have like monthly variation and it will show you, say, you know, average temperature and rainfall for months um, or variation between years. But it's unusual that you'd have both taken into account. Um, and so an example would be if there was an average yearly temperature, which was warm, but there was a noticeable drop in the winter. If a species is like from an equatorial area with little fluctuation in temperatures, they might be accustomed to that warmer temperature. But then the odd month where there's cooler temperatures, a pronounced cool season, the species which is accustomed to living in an equatorial area may end up dying because it's not adapted to that cool. Like even if it's a short cool period, they might not be able to cope with it because either they don't have the right behaviors or, you know, their body type isn't suitable to survive cold. Um, an example would be um, Burmese pythons in the Everglades. Mazotti et al. in 2011 talked about a load of Burmese pythons in the Everglades National Park when there was a cold snap in January 2010. A lot of them died because they weren't going underground like you'd expect a native species to do. You know, native species know enough to know that if you go underground, you stay above the, you stay below the frost line. Um, it stays that little bit warmer, the temperature is a little bit more consistent. Burmese pythons, being from Southeast Asia, they're not accustomed to that kind of a thing happening. So when they get cold, their immediate instinct is to go out and bask. Of course, if the temperature's, you know, approaching freezing, a basking snake is going to have absolutely no luck whatsoever in warming up. And so what they were finding was lots of dead snakes sitting out in the open or in trees trying to warm up when actually the best thing for them to do would have been to go underground. But Get you know, they haven't involved snake obstacles. Yeah, they haven't involved in that environment, so they end up just turning to ice, um, which is sad. But you know, being as their invasive species, the reality is for the rest of the biodiversity, it's actually quite good. Yeah, but it I mean, it doesn't always work to the sort of detriment of these invasive species either. These sort of novel, novel ways they can react. Um, as good examples, what was it in Fuller et al. 2011, which is one of the papers they cite in this one, um, showing that American bullfrogs, amongst others, make better use of man-made structures, like dam reservoirs and drainage channels and things, that give them that sort of extra foothold to establish, because the native species can't make use of these anthropogenic uh, structures, mm. and suddenly they're, they're using them in a new and novel way, and that's given them their in- even though the actual environment around them naturally wouldn't be particularly suitable to them, for them. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're an incredibly successful invasive species, the American bullfrog. And um, they actually are a testament to the fact that, like, what you've described there is really behavioural plasticity, yes. isn't it? You know, yeah. they're willing to exploit new things. They're almost, I mean, I'm not going to say that frogs are critical thinkers, but if you look at animals which are successful in and around um seriously altered anthropogenic environments it's those animals which can exploit new resources and opportunities brought about by the presence of humans as opposed to suffering because their specific niche has been destroyed by humans that end up being successful and a lot of times invasive species are really really disproportionately successful around human habitations and disturbed environments probably broadly for two reasons one of which is that they're more likely to be introduced in areas where there's a lot of human disturbance because humans are the agents of that change. They're the ones bringing them in. But then also they are able to exploit those things which humans have changed to their benefit where native species aren't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
and there's so many examples of that. So don't really want to get into it too deeply. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. That's a whole other kettle of fish. We're talking about drought and snakes. <laughs> we are. But anyway, Nerodia Cipidon, um, I mean... Introduced to California is the point. That's the connection. Yes, there. they are. <laughs> Yeah, they've been introduced to California in this paper. Um, I mean, Nerodia Cipidon, they're ugly monsters, aren't they? No, they're, they're, not. they're adorable, goofy, bug-eyed looking snakes. Mate, no. Nah. It looks like a mini anaconda with just none of the charm. <laughs> I think that's very unfair. I think they're perfectly charming. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of look a bit like, uh, you know, your water moccasin or copperheads. What is a water moccasin? Acistrodon Pesivorus, it's a viper from America. Doesn't it have a different name? Cottonmouth. Are they cottonmouths? Yeah, cottonmouth. Right, okay, that's what, that's, I, I hate water moccasin as a name, but they make them sound like a soggy shoe. <laughs> they are a soggy shoe. <laughs> no, of course they're not. Um, yeah, they, uh, yeah, you're right, actually. Water moccasin. Why would they be called that? I don't know. I'm sure someone knows. I'm sure there's a very good reason. Mm. Cottonmouth yeah. I prefer because it speaks of how they look and their behaviour. Yeah, and they do that gape. It's pretty scary. Yeah. So, yeah, I think anyway that these water snakes look a bit like those or maybe at a push the um, copperheads, which are Achistrodon contortrix, another um, another viper from America. Well, the water snakes aren't vipers, so, right? No. no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. The copperheads are and the water moccasins are, but the, the water snakes aren't. They kind of look a bit like them. Um, they've got this sort of tan-coloured background with darker bands on top. Um, they do, unlike the vipers, have upward-facing eyes, which is what I think makes me think they look a bit weird and kind of frightening. They, um, they're not big snakes, so like three or four feet long, and they give birth to live young, which is quite cool. Hmm. Up to 30, but usually around 8. The parents don't look after the young. They wave them goodbye straight away. So very similar to anacondas in that respect as well. Yeah, well, wasn't it you that said they were kind of the anacondas of the north? Well, I always associate, think of them like that because of their little googly eyes and very water snaky, you know, water snakes tend to have similar characteristics in that regard. There's snakes that live in water environments in Asia that have those same, like, googly eyes. And yeah. sort of uh, all nose like that, on the top they? of the top of the head and stuff. Yeah, yeah. all of those um, homolopsid snakes look. Yeah, like homolopsis that. too. Yeah, homolopsidae is the family. They all look similar. Yeah, all very well. All adapted. just these. Well, you'd hope so. Otherwise, they're just weird looking. Yeah, they're all just big, fat, you know, water adapted frog and fish eating. Um, yeah. So anyway, the point of this paper. They kind of had three broad aims um, to estimate how the abundance of this introduced species was going to change in the wetland habitat. Uh, They were also going to try and estimate how well they were surviving over a three-year period from 2013 to 2015. And they were going to measure the growth rates and body condition and sort of the demographics of the population. So how many males, females, um, and what the kind of size distribution was, whether or not they were getting smaller, bigger whatever it might be. Yeah, just essentially enough metrics to get an idea of how a population would react to drought and how the drought would affect the viability of that population in the future. I.e., yeah. would they become established and continue spreading in California despite droughts that 
you know, you'd expect to have some impact because they're aquatic or semi-aquatic. Yeah, and this study took place in a suburban wetland, which, unlike many areas in California, which experiences a really hot, dry season, it never dries out because, um, I mean, it shrinks, but there's a lot of drainage from nearby houses and gardens and stuff. And we're in Roseville, California. Um, yeah, so these snakes, Nerodia cypodon, they're kind of habitat generalists, but they're obviously strongly water-associated, clues in the name. So most of the water bodies in California are kind of ephemeral. They'll dry up in the dry season but that's counted a little bit by the amount of human interference in the water system because so many of the rivers are dammed it's there's a disproportionate amount now that never dry out where previously they would have but where they're from there's kind of a lot more permanent water bodies there's you know wetlands which aren't ephemeral they're wet year round and so that's what the snakes are adapted to these like constantly wet environments so the reason for this study was to find out whether that challenge had been overcome by this non-native population, whether or not they'd somehow managed to counterbalance the fact that they're adapted to a permanently wet area or environment, despite living in one which is largely seasonally dry, aka California, but mm. whether or not the amount of habitat modification humans had brought about had made it possible for them to survive. Yeah, and the first step is to catch a whole bunch of snakes. And they seem to be pretty decent at it. They've... Catching a whole bunch of snakes is always the first step, isn't it? Pretty much. Well, <laughs> no, first first step is deciding which type of snake you're going to catch. Yes. Then going out and catching that snake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they set up a whole bunch of aquatic funnel traps, which are these sort of hole in the front with a funnel, obviously, pointing into the trap so the snake can't easily go back up and out. So it's instead just sort of gets its head round the edge of the funnel and doesn't really understand that it's got to go back and then out. Right? Does that make yeah. any sense? Yeah, so it's, a, it's, a, it's your basic sort of funnel trap, yeah. Same as same as what they use for lobsters and yes, crabs and stuff. exactly like that. And They're baited though, aren't they? They've got fish in them. Oh no, they don't, do they not bait them, but fish no, naturally they, Exactly, they them. didn't have to bait them because fish and frogs and other uh, things like that that can be caught in fish in fish funnel traps just naturally accumulated and so what snake thinks oh it's an easy meal off it goes and they managed to catch capture 377 captures which covered 180 individual snakes over only 41 sampling days which is pretty remarkable in my books that's a yeah. lot of captures and a lot of snakes I was staggered by that um, yeah, it's a testament to how many there are there as well. Well, I think it's also a testament to how good funnel traps are as a way of cap- capturing semi-aquatic snakes. Yeah, I mean, I've surveyed, you know, we used to go out and survey, this is in Thailand, three or four ponds in a night, and we'd walk the perimeter, and we'd be lucky to catch one or two snakes. Mm. For them to go out and over 40 days catch, what was it, 300 and something? No, 180 individuals, but 377 capture events. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So nevertheless, yeah. that's an awful lot. That's really good. Very efficient way. I think that's the advantage of studying a water snake. They easily get stuck in traps. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we know they we've had various snakes caught in traps, but unfortunately not part of any sort of study, just finding them caught in traps or caught in traps and then tossed on roads and things in Thailand. That was one of the problems, but... Hey, 
if if you're using the aquatic traps to actually survey, they seem pretty good. Yeah, they they caught all these snakes over multiple years. Three years, yeah. And yeah, so 2013 to 2015, and then they looked at how the size had changed, you know, survivability and all this kind of stuff. And multiple lines of evidence basically pointed to a decline in what was thought to be a well-established population. Um, there was really quite low survival from 2013 to 2015. Growth wasn't good. It slowed between those years. Um, yeah. Body condition was declining and lots of adult females were dying over time. Yeah, so just give you some ideas of the numbers. 2013, they were estimating there was 150 to 310 snakes in this area. And then 2015, they're estimating 180... Oh, sorry, 80 to 120 snakes. And that's, that's your abundance, just... I mean, what's that? That's potentially At the half, very best, halving, it's halved. Yeah. You know, that's... That's a lot of gone, emigrated, dead, gone snakes. Mm. And it wasn't like it happened uniformly, too. It was adult females seem to be especially affected by this. And so we're talking about females over 600 millimetres SVL. So these Yeah, g- that's their breeding size. Exactly, that's it? your primary breeding size for these snakes. And to begin with, there was they captured 23. And by the end, in 2015, they caught one. So in terms of loss of reproduction age females that population is probably only going to decrease again beyond the scope of the study if uh, if there's not decent recruitment from smaller survived females during the drought but you've lost so many during the drought that you've got a that's a big ask in my books <laughs> especially if they're ask. less healthy because we've seen a reduction in body condition yeah so Everything's going to be harder for those snakes. Yeah. The, the the water body itself, the actual wetland area, I mentioned this is in a suburban area. The actual size of the wetland decreased by 75% from August 2013 to August 2014. So it's a quarter of the size it was in 2014. And then to 2015, that remaining 25% declined again. So there was less than half of it left. Yeah. So, you know, they're left with less than an eighth of the original area that they had. Um, and... During each year, it was 30% of snakes survived. So, you know, their numbers are crashing. And alongside the numbers of snakes crashing, the numbers of their prey that were being trapped were also crashing. So bullfrogs and mosquito fish are their favourite foods, which are both introduced species, are they not? Yeah. Both of those, which are their favourite prey, the mosquito fish and the American bullfrogs, they're both declining dramatically in this time as well. Um, so it's no surprise that the adult females struggle to survive you know, the water body is shrinking. They're big animals with a lot of body weight, high high energetic costs, and their prey's disappearing, their habitat's disappearing. It's a no-brainer that they're going to start to die. The ones which require most energy are going to die first. Yeah, I think that's also sort of driven home about how sort of dramatic the, or dramatically low, the growth rates were in this uh, study compared to others. So they had from, well negative 0.02 which is basically it didn't grow to 0.47 millimeters a day so what are we talking there that's 17 centimeters a year and that was based on 14 males and 17 females but we compare that to other populations and we've got other ones that have 
was it 0.47 to 0.2 so we just don't have that no growth and even higher ones that were described in King et al uh, 2006 that was 0.28 to 0.53 so in other water snake populations in their native range you don't see such low growth rates like there's still a couple that are you know still individual snakes in this population growing at a more expected rate but you don't see the really really low rates mm. in native yeah. native populations it all points to a population that's in real dire trouble yeah they're just not accustomed to this level of environmental change over such a short period it's kind of a neat metaphor for what could end up happening to human beings isn't it <laughs> <laughs> is it <laughs> they just get more and more in a smaller area and run out of food and yeah i mean grow less. you know an, in- an increase in uh, severe weather conditions well i think it's gonna I be a know. good it, it potentially is a good proxy for a lot of things dealing with extreme weather that you're going to start taking hits and how those hits are felt in a population is all going to be down to how the animals deal with it in this case we they mentioned towards the end of the paper they don't think any emigrated these snakes are less keen to use uh, to travel terrestrially apparently because um, they didn't detect any uh, eDNA eDNA in any environments within four kilometers of this population so uh, no. maybe they just missed them but the chances are this population is just retracted in situ because it's had no uh, opportunity to move anywhere else. Yeah. eDNA is DNA from samples which are environmental. So you can now take a water sample and test what animals are inside or what animals have come into contact with that water. Yeah. And they obviously tested a load of ponds and in the local area and none of them had experienced uh, Nerodia going through in the recent time in the recent months. So it's fair to assume that there was little or very no emigration, like you say, which is good because that's one of the uh, prerequisites for their mark recapture models. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So what the authors kind of finished off by saying is that um, we should eradicate these snakes as soon as possible in a kind of kick them while they're down scenario. Yeah, you've got a, a vulnerable population. You've probably lost a lot of your reproductive females. You know, yeah, exactly. You've also got them in a much smaller area, which is, they found boosted capture rates, even though there was fewer snakes, they still caught quite a few, because they're, they're so much more concentrated, you're more likely to capture them. You can put out fewer traps and you'll still get a decent number of snakes, because there's nowhere else for them to go. So, hmm. yeah, I think they're fine, well, part to do with that final point. It's a cool example they talked about in with the Lake Erie uh, water snakes described by King et al. I just mentioned, um, where they've just rapidly recovered from what was a pretty dire situation because they've suddenly been able to uh, eat all these introduced uh, goby fish. Yeah, it, yep, I and now they're too. eating. Yeah, what was it? Upwards of ninety-two percent of their diet are these introduced fish yeah i mean that's just yeah talk about a bounce back a comeback story uh yeah so should we go on to the second paper
The second paper is by Volgrink, Derso, Wynn, and Wilson, published in 2018. Landscape effects of supra-seasonal drought on semi-aquatic snake assemblages, published in Wetlands. Mm. So, similar sort of deal, but now you can sort of forget the invasive aspect and focus more on a sort of natural or perhaps anthropogenic climate shift and angle because we know that climate has quite a big impact on species we just talked about how it sort of defines their distribution rather neatly and we do know that it has quite a dramatic or potentially has quite a dramatic role in species extinctions there was a neat paper they pointed to by Pound et al which was looking at species in Costa Rica and showed that changes in abundance and the loss of some species that covered birds, uh, reptiles and uh, amphibians were actually quite well connected to unfavourable spikes in climate. At the same time, it's quite difficult to solely... Uh, attribute a species extinction to climate because it's so integrated into other things so connected to other aspects of the ecosystem I mean, climate is almost as fundamental as you can get so one of the the examples they bring up in that is the old golden golden toad and uh, the costa rican variable harlequin toad and you think okay yeah that's that's connected to climate they're going to be more vulnerable but at the same time you've got stuff like uh chytrid disease coming in there and giving them a sort of one-two punch so when you're talking about the climate stuff you've always got to think of how climate interacts with other things it's never really going to be the lone problem but it can cause a lot of problems and influence a lot of different things and it's probably quite hard to predict because, you know, ecology is intrinsically complicated. I think one of the most yeah. tragic stories they had in it was the Costa Rican variable harlequin toad, um, where there were fewer and fewer waterfalls from reduced rainfall. So the toads would gather up in these little areas of the few waterfalls that were left, and it made them more vulnerable to parasitic flies because they're all just there in a group, so the flies just come in and get them. And there you go, you've That's got horrible. a whole population concentrated in one very vulnerable spot. And things like that, you can certainly see, imagine, uh, boosting disease transmission. So you've got a climatic shift leading to a sort of behavioural shift to try and react to it, which in turn increases their vulnerability to other things which aren't exactly climate-related, but you can see how this whole thing has been kicked off by a shift in climate. The perfect metaphor for this is when you have a cold week in January, it's just after Christmas, and you've been drinking a lot, eating a lot, you know, your, your immune system's probably not necessarily at 100%, maybe travelling a lot, and uh, you have a particularly cold week, and so your immune system takes a little knock there as well, and then you get on a bus or a train with a load of other human beings who have also gone on similar, gone through similar circumstances, and you get a disease outbreak. <laughs> Obviously, and then everybody not... gets eaten by parasitic flies. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much where I was. I mean, I don't know about you, but at least in my office, there was a couple of people who had noticeable injuries from parasitic flies. <laughs> You've always got to be wary. They're waiting yeah, for you. Yeah, I mean, you can't wait to go. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, we don't have any serious fungal diseases affecting humans at the moment. Um, at least not in Wales, but, you know, could happen. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Landscape scale effects of bad droughts over many years on aquatic snakes. There's five snakes in this paper. Um, there are banded water snakes, Nerodia fasciata, Florida green water snakes, which are Nerodia floridana, black swamp snakes, which are Seminatrix pygia, uh, mud snakes, which are Pharanxia abacura, and glossy crayfish snakes, which are Regina rigida. Um, that's a lot of snakes to go through the natural history of, so we won't necessarily go into all of them in detail. I just thought it'd be cool to mention that um, the black swamp snake, which is Seminatrix pagia, is really cool. Um, it's a monotypic genus, so it's the only one in the genus, and it's black on top and red underneath, like really striking belly, red belly, jet black on top. And um, presumably this is startle coloration, which I can attest to the successfulness of, because I googled them and I was pretty startled. <laughs> what? They're I was amazing. like, what's this? Seminatrix Pesia, you know, I was expecting another brown, dopey looking water snake, yeah. and it turned out to be a pretty cool, you know, well, counter shaded with fluorescent orange. I think um, special mention to uh, Nerodia Floridana as well, because they're actually quite a warm orange colour, some of them, and they look quite good. Mm. Very autumnal snake, that one. Yes. Yeah, autumnal. Yeah, I mean, there's some and some, aren't they? Some of them are cool, some of them are brown. I don't know, yeah, they're they're very, they're, they're pretty awesome, actually. But here we are. We have five sympatric semi-aquatic snake species, all living it up large in South Carolina. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. If you're into water snakes, South Carolina is definitely the place to go. Sounds like um, it. Yeah. And so they were kind of, the point of this paper was that um, semi-aquatic snakes, you know, they're important in the ecosystem. They're meso-predators. You know, they control populations of smaller animals. They're, you know, they're pivotal in in the ecosystem. And a lot of them are threatened, but very little is known about how drought affects these species. And so the authors of this paper elected to trap a load of snakes, similar to the last paper, Mm. in South Carolina both before and after a really bad drought. So they started in... I mean, they can't have predicted there was going to be a really bad drought. They were probably just incidentally trapping them in 2006. And then they did the same thing again in 2013 after there had been a multi-year super-seasonal drought to see basically how having a really, really savage drought over, you know, seven years was going to affect the populations of these five snakes. Yeah. So, I mean, the game plan was... They picked out 20 different wetland areas, ranging from permanent to sort of semi-permanent. So, we, you know, these, these snakes we're talking about, each one has its own preference in terms of permanent water body and how terrestrial it is and what sort of water quality and water movement and things like that it's going to like. So they try to get a range of sites, so they're going to be picking up uh, how the droughts affecting, number one, the different species, but different types of wetland. And as you say, set up traps just like before. And 2006, they managed to capture 242 
uh, capture instances of the full of ten different species actually, and uh, in 2013 they only managed to capture 113 of ten different species. So right there, you're looking at a pretty dramatic change from one year to well, several years later. Especially when you consider that if the water bodies had shrunk and dried, it it should kind of increase your capture probability if the snakes are there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we did say, didn't we, this study's taking place in South Carolina. South Carolina, yep. Yeah, so just north of Georgia. Unsurprisingly, just south of North Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but the... um, yeah, the uh, the snakes kind of all behave differently in terms of their uh, responses as populations to this drought. Um, site occupancy for the banded water snakes and the Florida green water snakes decreased dramatically. So yeah. there were more sites which no longer contain these snakes. Um, however, the black swamp snakes that I was just talking about, the seminatrix, and also mud snakes and glossy crayfish snakes, their um, occupancy didn't really change. So they were still there. Yes, but it Uh, should be noted that that, uh, one of them was only captured a couple of times in both sampling periods, wasn't it? The... um, Which one was it? was the glossy crayfish snakes were only captured five times in 2006 and four times in 2013 so working with quite a small yeah. capture rate for those guys yeah yeah and even then all the like every single species saw a reduction but just some were more they significant did. than others i mean you said about the nerodias species both of them so we saw a 29 percent reduction in a Abundancy for Fasciata and 84% for uh, Floridana, which is yeah. massive. 84%. So you go, that's. That seems crazy. That's like they're almost wiped out of this entire area in terms of abundance. Yeah, it is. It, it is pretty serious decline. Um, and it makes you wonder how the snakes are going to bounce back from that because I mean I haven't looked on a map to see how connected these habitats are mm. um, well and it also that's quite a big deal how, to, how good to become, are they uh, to migrating back how good is they, their dispersal I can't yeah I don't suppose there's an, there's an answer to that that's known but yeah so yeah detection was reduced after the drought um, it's probably due to drought-induced mortality. Um, As we kind of said, you'd think it would be easier to find snakes. Um, You know, they do also suggest that um, mortality might not necessarily be a big deal to populations persisting because they might be able to bounce back. Um, It's really difficult to know, really. It is. It's it's difficult to unpick exactly what's going on here. Um, Whether or not these reductions represent serious threats to the populations or whether or not if you looked at it in on an even more coarse scale where super seasonal droughts have been relatively common over a period a time frame of you know hundreds or thousands of years 
presumably these snakes have been persisting for more like millions of years. Um, yes. So it's difficult. It's I... difficult to know exactly how severe they are, but it's hard to ignore the idea or the likelihood that increasing the frequency of these events could over time lead to a negative outcome for these species. Yeah, I think the trick is when you get some sort of results like this where droughts have a massive impact on certain species is that there's got to be some sort of buffer in these environments to allow recovery. And yeah. one of those is some level of connectivity in wetlands. Because we talk about these snakes and they're probably not going to be all that great moving terrestrially or, or very inclined to move terrestrially. So if you don't have that connection... Then how would how are them how are they going to repopulate if you've lost eighty four percent potentially of your population? And going back to the previous paper, if that is anything to go by, you're more likely to be losing breeding age females and the larger snakes, which are going to be producing more neonate snakes anyway. It, there's a real potential yeah. for a knock on if you don't have a bit of a buffer. And maybe some sort of immigration to uh, to counter it, or at least jumpstart mm. it. I mean, it's quite a serious concern, really, for America at the moment. Um, <clears throat> kind of got to try and look at the positives. Um, you know, really, there needs to be some serious consideration about water usage in these areas, um, which isn't going to be easy because people are really accustomed to you know watering their lawns and stuff like that. Um, but equally, like you said, connectivity is really, really key. Mm. Um, if you want to maintain these kind of diverse assemblages, uh, they do suggest that maybe there could be construction of artificial wetlands. Um, as we've said, you know, artificial wetlands would probably disproportionately benefit some snakes rather than others because if there's all these kind of, if there's, you know, five or ten water snakes existing sympatrically, they're partitioning the niche somehow. They're not all existing in exactly the same way, doing mm. the exact same things. It would probably be difficult to recreate that in a in a um, an artificial constructed wetland. wetland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they mentioned in this that these snakes are used. There is a a difference in partition that some are using more permanent and not. But not just you're not just dealing with the snakes. You're also dealing with trying to get the correct prey abundance in these different areas because some of these guys um, eat like giant salamanders and fish and others are eating smaller um, like abistoma salamanders and things along those lines or crayfish you know you're, yeah. you're dealing with pretty different prey species that need different <laughs> vegetation and uh, cover types it's a real you're reconstructing an entire trophic web again. And I think that's what sort of irritates me when places like this, wetlands and things, are failed to be protected. You're like, there's so much there's so much more work to fix that if you don't protect it in the first place. Uh, oh, absolutely. Nevertheless, I mean... Um, I'm trying to think of a positive, Ben. What's the the positive? positive is that the black swamp snakes... And the glossy uh, crayfish snakes and the mud snakes. And yeah, those trio possibly can estivate and therefore sort of reduce their metabolism and go into a 
what's the correct word? It's not quite. It's, it's not hibernation, but it's a like a low. No, energy, I never really know. It's a bit of a grey area. Low, like a brumation. Yeah, like whatever the correct, the precise term is. It's probably the precise term is estivation, isn't it? But it's a low energy yeah. sort of mode. Um, where they don't need to take on food and they're using less resources and they can just hide away and weather the storm. So the bright side is that some of these species are just sort of inherently tough. You don't want to have to rely on that, but hey, you might not lose all of them. (laughs) So the difference between estivation and brumation is that estivation is during a hot or dry period. So it's literally what prompts it as opposed to actual difference in what's occurring in the animal. Okay. Uh, yeah, but I'd imagine there's like slight physiological differences in how they tolerate hot or cold. But yeah, yeah. the broad difference is hot or cold. Never knew that. Yeah. From the Latin estas, summer. Oh, there we go. And the, the other sort of positive or potentially optimistic side of it is that, you know, snakes and things like this are quite plastic species a lot of the time and if they are given enough warning and enough time to adapt things will shift and evolution within the right contexts contexts and under the severe enough selective selection pressure you know things can change pretty swiftly if they have to so yeah worst case scenario they might just be able to tough it out if there's enough if there's enough of them left to do it yeah 84% reduction is scary but maybe that that those ones that survive are the absolutely cream of the crop in terms of dealing with low water yeah selection pressure is going to be pretty high in those situations isn't it yeah so you know nature finds a way right life finds a way yeah <laughs> to sleep a chance to dream <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can all just crisper them crisper them so uh, they don't need water uh, don't know what that means but it sounds like a good plan so <laughs> shall we go on to the, our special segment our species of the bye week So here we are again, species of the bye week. Uh, and this species is published in Campbell 2015, a new species of Rodinella, Serpentes colubridae from the Pacific Versant of Oaxaca, Mexico, published in Zootaxa. And uh, Rodinella is the genus of this new species, which is pretty rad in Ella. Pretty rad. I mean, if you hadn't said it, I was going to say it. Were you actually? Yeah. <laughs> As you were reading out. <laughs> yeah. Rad. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. I actually first saw that joke on Twitter because somebody, there was a video of a, a cuttlefish. You know, the, the kind of tongue of mollusks is called a radula. This like organ which kind of comes out and... Zaps things at lightning speed. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a tongue thing. Yeah, it's, it's ruthless. Um... Someone had just commented on a video of a cuttlefish using one to catch a fish. <laughs> That's pretty rad, you know. <laughs> oh, you know. Which I thought was hilarious. It's easy work, isn't it? 
Honestly, I'm so easily pleased. I have moments like that all day, every day. So, um, yeah, I don't really know a huge amount about Central American snakes, to be honest with you. Um, but Radonella was a completely new genus for me. I'd never heard of it before. Mm. But now there are 17 species with this new one. Well, I looked and it said that in the paper, but then I was like, well, this is old. Apparently now there's 18. Oh my gosh, they're coming out of the woodwork. Mm. I didn't do the legwork to work out which one was new. I just looked at a list. <clears throat> so can't tell you which one's more new newer you might say but um yeah this one was was new back in 2015 um it's part of the family dip saturday yeah dip saturday are a family of small snakes from the americas with enlarged grooved teeth towards the back of the jaw um they use those to introduce venom into the prey despite the fact they're rear fanged venomous they are generally harmless to humans Mm. Classic colubrid sort of situation, really. If you let them gnaw well, on you for 20 minutes. Yeah, but you can't say that because they're no longer colubrids. Oh, wait, they are. This is so annoying to me, okay? So it says in the thing, Serpentes colubridae yes. in the paper. <clears throat> in the but, title. Yeah, but Dis- Dipsadidae has been since recognised as a family of snakes. Oh, well done. Um, oh, it's taxonomy again, Ben. Why does it always end up with taxonomy? It's always Everywhere changing. Why can't why can't these animals just make up their minds what they're related to? Yeah, Radonella is in Dipsad today. <laughs> <clears throat> so <sighs> since then, I don't know who decided or where, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm ready to be corrected on that. But I think it's now its own family. Well, it is definitely a family, but Red and Nella are definitely in it as well. So I don't know why I'm saying maybe. It's definitely. It's just I can't find the paper where it was decided. Well, I'm sure it's about. And if it wasn't, isn't a full family, it's probably a subfamily, which yeah. will be surely elevated to a family because Colubridae is so damn big that it's probably about 20 families still. Yeah. Okay, there's a few papers if you Googled it Saturday, Google Scholar, so... <laughs> to look out another day. Uh, yeah, so this is a brand new species of snake to science. Obviously, it's been going about its business for ages, but human beings have just now decided to pay pay it some attention. Um, yeah, what does it look like? It's kind of skinny, small. What was it two hundred twenty millimeters long? There's only one specimen. Yeah, that's what's weird, and it was collected forty years ago. Yeah, and it looks like it was collected 40 years ago. It looks like a tad old piece of skin from the <laughs> freezer of death. It's pretty roughed up, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like two-thirds of it is just peeled off. Um, it, I think it was roadkill, yeah, wasn't mean, it? Oh, was it? Yeah, it found dead on like the road so. during the early mornings of an overcast day. What oh. a beautiful scene. The year's 1974, the 8th of June. <laughs> I was wandering <laughs> down the road and I saw a mysterious snake smushed. The weather was horrible. <laughs> yeah, so what do we know about this snake in terms of its ecology? Well, one of them crossed the road once, unsuccessfully. Yeah, I mean, really it's just implying from other uh, members of the genus, isn't it? Because it is yeah. sort of special in that this genus hasn't been documented in this area prior. So That's right, yeah. They've got a live photo of uh, Radinella Pilonor... Pil- Pil- Radinella pilonarorum. Pilonarorum. 
Pilinaurum. That's a really hard one to say from uh, Guatemala, which is a really handsome snake. It's like mm. black with really intense iridescence and then like an orange collar and a red sort of rusty brown head with black highlights. Yes, and a new one has... What's it... The new one looks it looks like it was once similar to that before it lost all its pigmentation. It's got like a lighter collar and a lighter head on a dark... On a, yes, on a the, uniformly the point dark is it's the, dark, the lighter head, isn't it? That's that's the bit yeah. that makes it most um, yeah. separate, distinct. Yeah. Yeah, and quite long teeth as well. Um, mm, don't get bitten by one. Yeah, no, it wouldn't be a nice, nice bite there again. Most snakes have teeth. Apart <laughs> uh, from those little worm guys. No, yeah. I don't know, actually. I don't know enough to say that they don't. They probably do. They probably have brutal teeth. really, really small. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> this new species, what's cool about it? Oh, yeah, so I enjoyed the etymology of this snake. So, a little bit of background. Um, there was a civilization once upon a time called Zapotec Civilization, which was um, an indigenous pre-Columbian civilization which was flourishing in the Valley of Oaxaca in Mesoamerica. Archaeological evidence suggests their culture is at least 2,500 years old. Uh, it's not actually relevant, obviously, to this species, although this species probably did co-occur with the Zapotecs. Um, but they played a ball game, which was basically like sort of volleyball, but with long, narrow alleys. So you play in a long, narrow alley, that's the pitch, with like slanted sidewalls, and you have to bounce the ball off your hip. And the hip's made of really heavy latex rubber. The hip, and the apparently, ball, surely. You hip the ball, yeah, with your hip. Yeah, you were saying the hips were made out of heavy latex rubber. Yeah, you, you, the ball's made out of latex rubber. Yeah, but you were saying people's but, hips were made out of latex no. rubber. <laughs> you hit the ball, which is made of latex rubber, with your hip. Yes. And apparently <laughs> this led to the players having perpetual bruising on their hips, uh, which I thought was interesting. Never knew any of that. And also... Um, Sometimes, on rare occasions, these games had a bit of human sacrifice thrown in for good measure. <laughs> so that kind of paints the picture of the name of this species. Um, this species is offered to the Princess Donahi, which is pronounced softly in Zapotec as Donashi, who, according to the Zapotec legend, was a beautiful granddaughter of King Kosihueza, the last great king of the Zapotec civilization. She was taken hostage, subsequently decapitated by warring factions, so anti-Zapotec peoples. Her head was lost, only to be miraculously rediscovered later on, in a fresh state by a shepherd who dug up a flower. I mean, this all sounds a bit far-fetched, but stay with me. <laughs> Her visage is now represented on the coat of arms of the city of Oaxaca de Juarez in Mexico, and the authors of this paper decided to name the species after her. Yeah. And they named it Radanelidanashi. I quite like that name and long-winded etymology. Um, I also like how the sort of beheaded aspect plays into the look of the snake because it's got a uniform coloured body and then a distinct coloured head. I like that. You are always thinking, aren't you? Well, yeah, it's even with the with the collar and everything. It's With a paler head, it's, it's almost as if the head's gone. Literally never crossed my mind, but that's genius. And the fact that it was discovered by digging up a flower, you know, the flower represents the colourful head. It's just an endless analogy. Yeah, and I suppose the road represents the warring factions. (laughs) (laughs) 
the chance discovery represents the element of luck in the historical ball game. <laughs> <laughs> and the damage to the tail, yeah, the bruising on the uh, sporting people's hips. <laughs> it's perfect. It's beautiful. It's like poetry. Wow. That's the end. I think, I think it has to be. Yeah. I think yeah. we should go away and think about that. Just, <clears throat> just dream about headless snakes. Yeah, Radanella, new species. It's a happy day. Hopefully there'll be more discovered, more individuals, and hopefully we'll learn something about their ecology and then we can talk about them. Yeah, the author was saying they'd been back another half dozen times and never found one. So There's no DNA work in this paper, is there? No, it's all morphometric, morphological. So it could potentially be a colour mutation? body mutation of some description but I think it's unlikely I think it's unlikely I mean it I don't know it, it could be it could just be a weird individual at this point because they only have one and looking at the uh, table of scales and things you know there is overlap with other species but I think the most distinct one is the ventrals don't come really close to any other species in terms of yeah, males. Yeah, that's very telling, isn't it? Um, that is very telling. And ventrals, that seems like quite a big deal, doesn't it? That's quite a yeah. sizable difference. It's not like two or three out. It's closer to 20 or 10 away from other species. Yeah, so, it's 12 away. Yeah. That's a lot of ventral scales. Yeah. 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 No, I'm not really do- pu- pulling it into question. I just thought I'd say something controversial. Well, it's, it's future um, work, isn't it? When they get a few more specimens, they can uh, they can do that, can't they? Yeah, exactly. But currently, very cool. Yeah. So that draws to a close our podcast on drought. Although, obviously, the snake we just discussed, the species by week, had nothing to do with drought, but that doesn't really matter. No, but it was um, a colubrid from North America. Well, it was a colubrid, now it's a dipsadid. Oh, uh, that's what I said. Ah, of course. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think. Have, you, have we got any other business? I haven't really got anything worth saying. Oh, I've got a paper to point people to. Go on then. It's a Brems paper, uh, 2018, brand new, Frontiers in Human Neuroscience. But the point was, nothing to do with human neuroscience. Um, the point is, prestigious science journals struggle to reach even average reliability. Now, I think possibly the title is a little bit harsh, but the general message is that just because a journal has a high impact factor does not mean that it will be significantly better methodologically or more robust in terms of sample size and statistical power than something published in a lower impact journal. No, I mean, and really, that's no surprise to me. It's not massively surprising, but I like having the numbers that back that up when you're reading yeah. something really quite neat in a smaller, say, herpetological focused journal and thinking... Oh, why does none of this stuff ever get public? You know, why is it never in these high impact, crazy journals? It doesn't really undermine what's being done. It's still valuable and just as likely to be quality science, even if people don't cite it and don't care as much. I quite like that. Yeah. Because the small stuff yeah. can still be very well done, even if it's not a uh, big holistic theory like things. No. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The big top tier journals, it's all glamour. It's all like, I mean, to be fair, you know, oftentimes it is really interesting and it, it's easily, it's just a lot of the time it, it's, it, 
it comes down to whether or not you can spread a good yarn about it. Yeah, potentially. And if you can, you're in a much better shot of getting into, you know, science or nature or something like that. And if you can't, if it's, you know, complex, drawn out methodologies, or if it's just important findings for conservation value of an individual species, it's not going to make it to the top tier journals, like you say, but there's no reason why it's not worthwhile anyway. I I think most scientists have got their heads screwed on about that. It's only the ones that really want to be like high, high, high flyers. Yeah. And it does help. It does help your career if you get one or two in the in the top journals, exactly. especially that's, when you're starting That's the trick off. is that you, you have these little caveats of it does actually help to have a high impact journal like publication things. It does. It does. It's like, oh, it does help funding there. And it's, there is still that impact factor equates uh, to potential funding. That's yeah. And it. I know it matters I just like for a having... lot of university academics too still. Yeah. Like, you know, they have like ref and all this stuff where they are on a whatever year however many yearly basis graded on their success and they have to kind of evidence that they're being impactful enough yeah it's just an impact factor everybody knows it's not perfect it's just nice it's nice having the numbers behind it saying hey it's not just that it's not down to quality of science basically it's down to other stuff yeah so that to me that to me was quite nice and reassuring and made me feel better about doing niche herpetological research. Mate, you should feel nothing but good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, that's, it was just that tiny little bit of reassurance. It's like, look, the numbers are all, numbers are okay. It's fine. We're still doing good work (laughs) down here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, on that positive note, let's finish off. Um, If you want to get in touch with us, we are on facebook.com slash herbhighlights, twitter at herbhighlights, and herbhighlights at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, sorry my voice is a bit husky this week. I'm not very well. Before I yeah. throw that in there. Oh, uh, full show notes at herbhighlights.podbean.com. If you want any of the things we've talked about, I think everything is nicely cited in there. Because you never know. Yep. You might want to go read about Radinella. Yeah. Uh, thanks for everyone who voted for us for the uh, Reptile Report radio show of the year. Uh, we didn't win, but we got a mention, which is cool. Um, congratulations to Corallus Radio, who won, and also Chameleon Breeder Podcast. There we go. Who won yeah. the Reader's Choice. I've, I've listened to both of those. They're both really good. No hard feelings. <laughs> uh, yeah, cool. cool. Anyway, should we wrap it up? I think so. I think we're all all done here. I think it's just left to say thank you for listening. Hope to yep. uh, have you all be listening in, in uh, a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. Oh, and if you have any corrections, tell us. Oh, yes. We get stuff wrong all the time. All the time. Constantly. <laughs> but hopefully okay, more stuff cheers. right than wrong. Cheers. get all sorts of weather then.
So it's just a dog decided just to waltz in. Hey, what is it with you and being surrounded by animals? Oh, I know they're ridiculous. They need to be put in vivs. 